This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week, we're going to chat about the big Money and Markets related events of the year, debate why Sports Direct has gone all posh, and we'll have a festive quiz at the end. So joining us this week is Russ Mould, Investment Director at AJ Bell. Hello, greetings to all. So Dan, tell us what happened in the markets in the past week. Has the Boris bounce lasted or are we now back into doom and gloom again? Well, the Boris bounce is pretty impressive, as we discussed on the podcast last week. But since then, it's come back quite a bit. Um, what's happened is that uh, Boris Johnson has come out and said I, he's not going to have an extension to the transition period. And so people are starting to get worried again about does this mean an, a no-deal Brexit in, in one way or another. Um, and so Sterling's come back um, and markets, yeah, it, it's a bit frustrating for investors who thought perhaps they were enjoying a, a sort of this big rally in UK equities. But I think if you go back to the start of the year, so we started 2019 in in a pretty bad mood, I reckon, if you're an investor. So, Speak for yourself. Yeah. I was jubilant. <laughs> so the fourth quarter of 2018 was rubbish on the stock markets. Um, and actually the FTSE 100 ended the year down 12% in 2018. Well, at the moment, it's now up 12% in 2019. So I think people have had a pretty good year. So you started the year with uncertainty. Then slowly people starting to sort of look at the trade war um, between US and China and what's happening with Brexit and perhaps gaining some certainty. And then Boris has thrown something in the mix and now we're, we're back to uncertainty. But I wouldn't say it's a sort of a catastrophe like perhaps as some people thought it might be. But um, is it, I mean, Rusty, obviously you're looking at the markets constantly. How, how do you sort of gauge the market mood at the moment? At the moment, I think markets are still buying into the, into the belief they've got central banks at their back and that they're underpinning markets and they're determined to stop things going down to create a wealth effect. So I think over 75 interest rate cuts worldwide this year, I think that's been a source of help. Um, there are hopes for a trade settlement between the US and China. I know we got those announcements over the weekend, details of which there are none rather suspiciously, but nevertheless, America did not put the tariffs on over the weekend that it was supposed to. So I guess that's been taken as a positive that there may be some firm agreement between America and China at some stage. And also you've got this creeping movement politically towards fiscal stimulus. America is already running budget deficits that would embarrass most banana republics. The Italians have launched a tax package this year. The South Koreans have. The Japanese have. Uh, and now Johnson and Javed, Prime Minister and Chancellor of the UK, are both talking about completely abandoning him the plans for a balanced budget at any stage and actually cranking up the spending. So I think you've got loose monetary policy, hopes for a trade deal and increasingly loose fiscal policy. And that at the moment is stoking hopes for much improved earnings growth in 2020 and beyond. Obviously, on all three counts, we've now got to see delivery. It's all very well climbing the wall of worry. But if things then don't get delivered, markets then go down the slope of hope. So, Russ, Dan talked about the fact that the FTSE is up about 12% over the year, but are there particular sectors or Yeah, areas I mean, if you look at the better? best five, it's a bit of an odd, an odd bunch, and they're actually generally quite small, but the top five performing sectors are leisure goods, which I think must be Games Workshop, is it, and trolls and orcs and things, is that right? Yeah, I think that's only because the index consists of one company. It's tiny, yeah, leisure goods, technology hardware, which I guess is down to Spirant, which, again, it's a pretty small sector, and they're both up 
more than 50%. Right. And then you've got up around 35 to 40% construction materials, electronic and electrical equipment, and financial services, intriguingly. You're the mm. top five performers. None of them are absolutely enormous, but they're the best five. The worst five are actually much more heavyweight. Oil and gas producers down 7%. Fixed line telecoms, that's poor old BT, down 10 Industrial metals, which I guess is Evraz particularly. Autos and parts, which will be Melrose now. And dead bottom, oil equipment and services. And that's not been helped by this week. Profit warnings from hunting and petrifact. Because with the oil price having been relatively flat over the last 12 months, you're not seeing a big pickup in capital investment from those major oil companies. So there's been enormous dispersion from up 78% to down 21% between the best performing sector in the FTSE all share and the worst. So in theory, if you are an active fund manager and a stock picker, you have been able to find alpha and you know create some value this year. So I think that's a good point about fund managers being, you know, showing their ability to be good stock pickers. And the ones that haven't done well um, have been really put under the spotlight this year. I think obviously with the Neil Woodford Income Fund having considerable problems and that's now being wound up. Um, we've had some other fund managers as well, sort of having to justify their poor performance. So I mean, I, I'm sure Laura, you you look at funds quite a lot. Um, you know, I guess Woodford is the story. I mean, at the start of this year, I don't think anyone would have predicted that this guy would be in the newspapers on a daily basis for for negative reasons, wasn't it? So, yeah, and I certainly don't think anyone would have predicted the final outcome that we've got, which is him closing his entire fund management business, the funds being taken over or liquidated. So that was definitely the big story of the year for the fund management industry and for the investment industry. And I think we'll have repercussions into 2020 as well as the regulator talks about issues of liquidity. Um, we've also seen it's a slightly separate issue, but we've also seen a property fund um, close in the past few weeks, which we've talked about before. So I think as boring a word as it is, liquidity is probably going to be the story that carries on into 2020. And I think another big theme we've seen this year is the rise of ESG, um, particularly on the investment side. This is environmental, social and governance stuff. Um, I was looking at the best performing funds in the global category. Actually, it's full of ESG and ethical stuff. I think that might surprise people. Um, as That's this so interesting, actually, because I, I've seen it as a story of kind of people being interested and in there potentially being inflows into it and a lot more kind of chatter about it. I'm not sure I necessarily thought of it as the story of kind of investment performance and yeah, success. I don't know. People think it's like uh, perhaps I'd be prepared to give up some returns because mm. I'd, if I know them getting sort of an ethical um, investment. But no, you, you can definitely have made some money. That I, I was looking at... Um, there's, you know, Pictet hey, Global Environmental Opportunities is a good example of one of the best performing funds on the market. I mean, it's, um, it's being a cynic, tying back in with what Russ was just saying, that could be because a lot of these funds avoid the oil and gas industry, and as he's a, just which highlighted, has been a poor performer. Tobacco has been a generally tricky performer this year. Some of the industries that they've naturally avoided, like gambling, tobacco, and oil, haven't been brilliant performers this year. So that may have helped. But there are some studies out from. Um, Deutsche Asset Management and UBS Asset Management that look at ESG passives. And what their studies show is that you certainly don't sacrifice performance by taking an ethical approach over a long period of time. And what their analysis argues is that companies which have got good ESG records and good ESG disclosure, which I think is another theme that's going to come more and more, is what do companies disclose voluntarily, what will they have to disclose – are actually now being awarded a lower cost of capital by the market. So it's actually easy for them to raise funds, easy for them to borrow, uh, and therefore it's easy for them to you know, exceed their weighted cost of capital with, with return, on return on capital and generate value. So I think that is definitely a trend. Now, I'm sure over time, 
the market will work this out and attribute a higher multiple to those companies. So the natural performance edge may fade away over time. But I think there'll be an initial process whereby companies may be rewarded for superior clarity and superior action. Equally, it was pointed out to me by a, a US uh, friend last week that Peabody Coal couldn't price a bond in the month of December. So, so wary were people of the ESG, I guess, implications, or how on earth do we fund what we think may be a stranded asset because of ESG implications, they couldn't actually raise a, sell a bond, raise the debt. Now, as my friend pointed out, we still need steel, so far as I'm aware, and Peabody doesn't make thermal coal, it makes coking coal. So we still need steel to make solar panels stand up straight. We still need steel for wind turbines. So there are some potential implications there whereby ESG could actually unintentionally choke off supply for some things that we may still need in the short term, even if the long run we, we, we want to be moving in the opposite direction terribly quickly. So there may be some interesting dislocations caused unwittingly by ESG. It's then a matter of what you think your investment portfolio is there for. Is it to do good and make a profit and protect your wealth? Or is it actually I'm just here to protect my wealth and make a profit and the rest can take care of itself? So that's going to be a matter for people to address on their own portfolios and how they want to address But the good news at the moment, you don't seem to be losing out on performance by taking a more pro-ESG stance. No. Well, you mentioned tobacco um, a second ago. I mean, that's actually, if you look at the two big stocks on the UK stock market, um, British American Tobacco and Imperial Brands, mm. their performance this year has been completely different. Wildly so, diverging. Yeah. So, I mean, so British American Tobacco is up 28%. Yep. Imperial Brands is down 28, 25%. Yep. And, I don't, you know, this is... A sector which I thought would come out of fashion, particularly people are looking at ESG stuff, they're becoming more health conscious. You think that tobacco wouldn't be in favour, but is it just a case of British American tobacco hasn't had its profit warning and Imperial Brands has? Correct. I think that's exactly... I think Imperial Brands was shoveling a lot of money into the vaping business and was losing a lot of money there as a result. And I think the now outgoing chief executive, Alison, Co Alison Cooper, and the ex-chairman they were slightly strangling the company by sticking to this 10% dividend growth policy that they outlined. And I think that was making it very, very hard for them to invest. And it was, they were all, I got the impression they were almost running the company just to make sure they could make that number. And I, so I think now that they've been, the company's released of that burden, I think that's one thing. And I think the, the vaping scandal in the US could be quite interesting, albeit, again, unintentionally. If people scrap vaping because it's giving them popcorn lung, and as Private Eye said, who would have guessed putting hot chemicals in your lungs rather than fresh air could be bad for you? <laughs> um, you know, if people go back from vaping to sticks, which they could, I mean, it could actually be a mild positive for Imperial Tobacco. And I think if you look at the tobacco stocks, you're dead right. It is an industry that volume-wise is shrinking 3 to 5% a year in stick terms. Good, because it's generally pretty bad for people's... I know it brings a lot of people pleasure, which is what the tobacco companies would say, but it's pretty bad for your health. But the tobacco companies can cope with that by jacking up prices 3 to 5%. If volumes are down 10, I don't think sticking up prices 10% a year is a easy thing to do, particularly now there's no branding and you've got tumours on the packets rather than pretty colours. So I think if the net result of the vaping scandal is the US is that, heaven, you know, is that people go back to sticks... That's probably in the short term a positive for Imperial, particularly. Bats hasn't quite committed so heavily. And also, don't forget, Imperial's now on a 12% dividend yield. Bats is on about 7 And cash flow-wise, they're covered. 
and they're well covered right now. Now, you can make the long-run case that cash flow is going to come under pressure, but if sticks are down five every year and prices are up five every year, that cash flow isn't going to come under a lot of pressure for a long time. So they may actually be deceptively, from an income perspective at least, interesting investments for 2019, 2020 and beyond, providing again you hold your nose on the ESG front, and that's again a debate that a lot of people will have to have. But I suspect that, you know, Joseph Campbell said, you know, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And Imperial might just be one of those type of stocks in 2020. So this year was also the year that unicorns died. Oh, and we're not yeah. talking about the mystical creatures. <laughs> we're talk- <laughs> I guess you're talking about the, the, the billion dollar um, companies. So the definition is a billion dollar company that was private, but some of them yeah. have come to the market, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what have we seen this year in terms of IPOs? So, so Lyft and Uber... Uh, two examples. Now, their shares are both down by a third. I don't mm. think investors who were uh, looking at the stocks when they were trying to do their roadshow before they floated w- would have been expecting that. They would have been expecting mega returns. Despite um, Uber saying that it's not sure it'll ever make a profit. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we've had WeWork try to come to the market um, and it, it didn't even get it away. And actually, unfortunately, it sort of resulted in sort of complete change in the business, isn't it? And it, it's um, slimming down now rather than growing, which is, you know... Uh, yes, it's reported $47 billion valuation is now an $8 billion valuation. That's quite the write-down. Yeah. Yeah, it's not made SoftBank share price look very good. That's down by about a quarter from its high now, and it's still sinking, intriguingly. So SoftBank is this Japanese um, company that seemed to back many, many of these sort of startups, fast-growing businesses, um, and it's now looking quite embarrassed because it's been backing businesses. I think it, it was trying to encourage them to grow but don't care about the profit. But you know, from an investment point of view, I think we all quite like profit. It's a big, it's a big backer of Uber. It's just given up on a on a dog walking app called Wag, as well. So I think, I mean, SoftBank had built up a brilliant reputation because it had a very, it turned a very small investment in Alibaba, and a very small investment into Yahoo Japan into absolutely monster successes. But from picking two stocks, well, great, to running a ninety-seven billion dollar technology fund, the Vision Fund, is a very different skill and. No disrespect to Masayoshi Sun, who runs SoftBank, those two initial investments just could have been luck. I mean, he's now got to prove he can do it on a systemic basis, on a much grander scale. It's proving but a I lot harder. I guess that's the nature of private equity, though, right? You just want your winners to... You know that you're going to have some losers and some that you back that completely fail. But as long as your winners more than counteract that, then you're up over And you can the say, air. so far, he's achieved that. But with the Vision Fund, he hasn't. Mm. And he is looking to do Vision Fund too. And intriguingly, that's gone quiet. And the big backers of Vision Fund 1, who include the Saudis, and, um, they don't seem to be quite so keen to put their hand in the pocket second time round thus far. The other um, unicorns that came this year were Slack. That's down by about a half. Pinterest is flat, but it's halved from its peak. WeWork didn't happen. Palantir has been delayed to 2020. And everybody's waiting for Airbnb in 2020. The phrase I have come to describe these, I've come across, it's not one I wish I'd come up with. It. It's from the New York Times. Plumps. Yeah, what does that Publicly stand? listed unicorns miserably performing. Yeah. Plumps. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish yeah. I'd come up with it, but it's in the New York Times. More power to the lady who came up with it. Yeah. <laughs> so also this year, we've lost a few names in the stock market, including Thomas Cook, which has gone bust, Alton Towers owner Merlin, which has taken over. We also lost the king of passive investing, didn't we, Laura? Yeah, so Jack Bagel died on 
16th of January this year, which was like a very long time ago. So he was the guy that set up um, Vanguard, but he was basically the grandfather of passive investing. Um, so he set up this index tracking business at a time when that wasn't a thing. Um, took a while to build up steam but eventually built it into a five trillion dollar company and so that's another big theme that we've seen this year um is an increasing shift to passive investing so i had a look at some figures in october which is the latest figures available 1.8 billion pounds was invested in trackers and if you compare that to the same time a year earlier it was just a third of that amount so you can see how that pickup has really happened i mean i know in passive it's huge in the US. Mm. In the UK, um, it's nothing near on the scale, but I mean, the direction of travel is uh, it's such increasing popularity and people seem to think that um, I want to be in, in the markets, I'm happy putting my money into it, take the risk. Um, perhaps if I don't want to pay a fund manager to do it, I'm, st- I, you know, I'm still getting exposure. And I think that's the key. It's the low cost appeal of why um, ETFs seem to be just growing and growing and growing. Yeah, exactly. Which in turn then puts pressure on active fund managers like we talked about earlier um, for them to actually deliver returns and for them to lower the costs themselves and if those fund managers aren't performing well then we we have started to see some kind of consolidation and and job cuts in those areas as well. So then Dan back to things that are happening this week sports direct share price has Mike Ashley actually said something positive for us? I know. The, well, the shares went up 30% in a day, which is... you know That feels quite volatile to me. Yeah. Um, and what, what happened was Sports Direct issued its half-year results and it said there was a stable performance in its UK retail stuff, reduced losses in premium lifestyle, House of Frasier, there was green shoots of recovery and improved profitability in Europe. So it, it, everything seems to be working out after a sort of a, a very difficult period for the business. But what, what's quite interesting, they've got this sort of slow bubbling change of strategy to go up market, which does seem a bit odd. So that sports is not something, a word I would associate with Sports Direct <laughs> currently. So I feel like that's going to be quite a long journey for them to go on. So yeah, if you go to the average store, it's, it's like masses of clothes everywhere and sporting goods, pile them high and sell on cheap but what they're trying to do on a small scale at the moment but they've got sort of big aspirations is to um rather than relying on their own brands they're going to rely on third-party brands and essentially just sell um, more expensive clothes and that sort of stuff but they're using um they're using various brands including flannels which i thought was a bit odd um, that's one of these long-standing in-house brands, though, isn't well, it? Well, so I've never heard of that. It was it was launched in the seventies, and Sports Direct have sort of slowly taken stakes in it now that now they own it. Um, but to me, like, that, that's something. It's a bit of cloth you wash your face with. Um, it's not the name you sort of. I think it's <laughs> probably more to do with the trousers that cricketers yes. used to wear and tennis players used to wear. Uh, I think they used to wear flannel, white white flannels. I think that's probably where it's gone but, from. But, but the name doesn't yeah. scream high end. No, does it? but so I had a look on the website, and you can you know this is this is probably more your area, Laura, than mine. Um, Five hundred quid trainers, thousand pound coats. Oh, cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's got. I saw it's got a camouflage pattern t-shirt for 255 pounds is that what you're hoping for for christmas this well year? i'm sure you could go to primark and get one for a couple of quid <laughs> um it's got gucci rubber sliders for 200 quid so anyone know what a rubber slider could be i do because i have watched love island and I would have guessed them. it was a badly cooked burger, actually. Yeah. Truth yeah. so, but, yeah. I think I'd rather that, actually. <laughs> it's just some rubber sandals. Yeah. So probably 10 quid down the high street. Um, but you get the idea. They're selling, they're selling sort of things that are ultimately 
If you're going to buy yeah, Gucci sliders, you're not going to go into Sports Direct to do it. Well, no, you're going to one of its more flannels or phrases. Yes, it's trying to position. So you would, you're not going to have sort of. Um, a hundred t- tennis balls sort of uh, <laughs> falling over next to your um, your rubber sandals. Um, it's going to be the shops will be kept a bit different. But right. the idea is that it's his um, future. Mike Ashley's future son-in-law is in charge of this called so-called elevation strategy. So. Um, that's it's difficult to do. I mean, yeah. Ted Baker's got a problem. With, there is a perception that it's got a problem with its price points right now. That it's just too expensive, and that, for example, on its women's wear. Ladies and girls don't want to pay 250 or 300 quid for a dress because in the Pinterest and social media world, they can only wear it once. Whereas before, you could have taken it to three or four different weddings or parties, no problem. Now you can't. You can only wear the thing once. Then you have to either sneakily take it back or actually just not pay for it at all. So I think there's a price point issue there. And we've seen other companies like Mulberry, which tried to take itself up the value chain, left behind its customers and actually ended up having to revert. So it's it's not easy to do. And also, Mr. Ashley's very well aware that Sports Direct's ultimate success, as that brand's success point, has been pile it high, sell it cheap. And I don't see how he's going to be able to change that at all. I can see what he's trying to do. And no disrespect against Mr. Ashley, but if I was carrying running Gucci, I think I'd be extremely careful where my brands were placed mm. and positioned. and Because that will affect perception of your core plutocratic customer base. So I would suspect he, you know the brands may throw out certain things or maybe let certain things go through but I can't see the whole product range going through there I really can't and if I was running Gucci I wouldn't even contemplate it no because I looked on on the Flanders website they if you scroll down sort of I don't know a little bit you start to get products that are having already on sale the classic sports direct sort of mentality a mm. hundred quid off and of course if you're 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 devaluing a product immediately if you're well, running a luxury brand the one thing you do not wish to be associated with is discounting at all that's mm. not the point of the exercise the point is you charge a premium price why because those people who can afford that like the fact that they can afford it and most other people can't and that's why they're luxury goods in addition to quality and all those other important things and so some of the analysts notes were sort of saying that you know this is driving up margins yes higher price points can improve its free cash flow help to pay down debt i mean i I just think it's a bit they're going through a transition period it's quite interesting but it's the long lasting appeal is it its name is made on you know really running a business um really tight control on costs and selling things at a price we can afford and i think that people always stick to what they're best at um, but we'll see. You know, I, I might get proven wrong, um, but we might be right. But it's it's. An- you might be in there in 2020 buying your Gucci sliders. Yeah. We just don't know. Well, you know, I didn't think I needed a pair of rubber uh, sandals, but perhaps I do. What if I wanted to run around a swimming pool? Will that stop me from falling over? <laughs> we'll see. So I think it's time for us now to do our festive quiz. I've got nine questions for you. Oh. Um, they're all connected to stuff that's happened this year, uh, and I. You, so Russ is looking a bit worried, but I don't think you need to be worried. I think you'll know these off the top of your head. Um, I'll I buy. Mean, that is throwing down the gauntlet, isn't it? Yeah. And so I'll, I'll, I'll buy the. Anything before two thousand, I'm really good on. Anything after that, it's a bit of a struggle. <laughs> so whoever wins at the two of you, I'll buy you a pint of baby sham at the Christmas party tonight. So. Um, what a prize! Are you ready? Right. I want to lose now, to be honest. Okay. All right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go through here. So, I think. Apologies in advance. We haven't got buzzers. We, um, unfortunately, the Age of Bell um, budget wouldn't extend to having 
it's a proper quiz maybe setup. in 2020 so we'll we'll do we'll, we'll we'll attempt it if i feel that everyone's shouting out too loud and hurting our listeners ears we'll have to um think of a new way to do it but at the moment i think it's the whoever answers first will have to can get a chance to to win it so number one so restaurant business chalango has just warned its burrito bond investors they could lose how much of their cash 98 90 is Nine, it's 90 russ is correct so well done, Russ. Number two, what did Woodford Asset Management do to make Neil Woodford's life easier when horse riding? I have not. This is a Woodford fact. Did he I have a special know. phone set up so he could use the phone and talk on the phone while he was riding the yes, horse? That's it. They oh, bought wow. in. Good they, knowledge. They bought in phones with special recording functions so he could make trading instructions while out riding. My year has been so dominated by Woodford, I feel stupid for not knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the equine angle that appealed to me. That's oh, why there it's we are. <laughs> So number three, how much in percentage terms did Vodafone cut its dividend? That's definitely one for us. I'm going to say it a lot. Uh, 60%. Okay, right. well, I'll slightly undercut that at... 58%. So I'll go to the one that's closest to the answer. And then Laura, you're the winner because it's 40%. 40. Yeah. Uh. Well done, Laura. Um, so the help to buy ISA has just closed. New oh, now we're talking, yeah, right. Has just closed to new applications. For my arms. <laughs> How many different types of ISA are there? And you've got to name them all. Six. Okay, go on, Laura. What? Innovative Finance ISA, Stocks and Shares ISA, Junior ISA, Lifetime ISA, Cash ISA and was the help to buy ISA, but no more. Yeah, we'll still like because it's still in. If you're already in it, you're still using it. So I'll give you a well done. You, you won that one. Okay, so number five, AG Bar had a terrible year with a nasty profits warning in the summer. Can you name me three products it sells? Iron Brew, Vimto, and that's Nichols is Vimto. Uh, yeah. Iron Brew is the main one that it's known for, yeah. and then there's a couple of fizzy waters whose names I've completely forgotten. <laughs> So the answer is no, I can't. No, is that a I don't think answer? either of us can. Oh dear. I can do Iron Brew. It, it does Tizer, um, oh. Dandelion and Burdock, um, Rockstar. I don't know Bar, any of these. Um, Sun Exotic. Fun How is King. this company still going? Yeah. I don't know any so, of these. So anyway, okay, so no. that wasn't... I Neither. Thought, I thought you were going to be no. doing well. No, I don't drink, really do fizzy no. drinks, apart from champagne, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right too. So number six, Restaurant Group is a company on the stock market and they own Wagamama. Yep. Can you tell me the brand name of the new Wagamama takeaway site? Oh, I saw one the other day. No. Oh. I'm, no, I can't, but Sorry. I know it. Mama Go. Oh, that's Mama it. Go, there we are. Well, that's a tough one. Um, Saeed Javid was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer in July. Can you name me... Every chancellor in the UK since the 28th of November 1990. No. Okay. Since when? Since since the end of 1990. We'll be here all day. I'll, I'll give you a clue. This, okay, well, we've there's got... seven. So Hammond. Philip Hammond, Gordon Brown will be the big two. Norman Lamont. Yeah. Uh, was, that's John Major, no? No. No. Lamont, Hammond, Brown... Kenneth Clark? Yep. That's four. Oh, George Osborne. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did we forget him? There's a good reason why, actually. <laughs> uh, so that's two missing. Well, what about the current one? Oh, Sajid Javid. All right, six. Yeah. 
I'm so not just, doing but just one. Yeah, one more to go. I'll give you a clue. It starts with A. Alistair, um, darling. Yeah, that's it. Well Alistair done. Ah, uh, with the eyebrows. Got it. Well done. That's good. Who was the crisis chancellor, of course? That was good. That was impressive. Yeah. No. Okay. Number eight. So, ten percent of Manchester City was just being sold to US private equity firm. How much is the football club, the whole football club, worth in dollars? In the val- based on the value of this transaction, five billion dollars. Laura, have a guess. Five point five billion dollars. Oh, Russ wins. Four point eight. Four point eight. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So last one. So we've had an unusually high number of FTSE 100 CEOs change this year. Now, I want you to name me. I'm going to give you three names and tell me who do they work for now and who was their previous employer? This is impossible. Stinker. Right, keep going. Right. So, Roland Diggleman. He is now the CEO of Smith & Nephew. Yep. And where did he used to work? Before he joined Smith, absolutely no idea. Okay, so it was. He was on the. Was it Roche? Okay, Roche. Yeah. Okay, Philip Jansen. He's now the CEO of BT, and he was previously at WorldPay. Well done. I feel like I should just get my coat at this point. Um, And then finally, Penny James (laughs) is now the CEO of Direct Line, which has been relegated to the FTSE 250. And where did she used to work? I'll just pull out another insurance company out the hat, Aviva. No, Prudential. Oh, tried hard. So we're going to have an amazing section here where we stop recording and I spend the next half an hour adding up the results. <laughs> um, actually, I don't will need sing to. a little Christmas carol I while we wait. Yeah, I, so I, Dan was trying to get me to sing Slade's period is Merry Christmas. Oh, that's true. Day. That's how we're going to end the podcast, yeah. didn't you? Know? Russ, please, please, could you do an impression of Noddy Holder? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I'd deafen all the listeners if I did that. <laughs> I think just looking at it now, I can see that Russ I think is I the won, winner. You're right. Yeah, Russ is the winner. So um, that was brilliant. Well, well done. done. That was impressive that was knowledge. Hard. Yeah, that was good though. Yeah. Just just before we go, we've been over the last couple of weeks as we've been recording these podcasts, we've been doing a mince pie tasting competition. Yes. Um, and Laura has decided there is a winner. Who, who is who it's is the master mince pie maker? Sainsbury's. Wow, I would good. like to point out that this has been not very thorough and not very even-handed and just based on mince pies that we can find near the office. So <laughs> Quite a few, though, I would think. Yeah, I've eaten a lot for this and I've given a lot to the podcast in that. So, very yeah, good. Sainsbury's, that's where you should get your mince pies. Very good. And that is all from us. And it's also the last podcast of the year. So thank you to everyone who has listened this year. And we'll be back in January. Until then, have a Merry Christmas and a fantastic New Year. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.